Uh, in light of that presentation, I turned off my back. Not my back, my pack. Because, uh, yeah, how do you follow that up, right? That's always there. Those who grew up in the church every year, I always say, like, sorry if that was triggering or traumatizing for you because you were forced to do that one time. But we will do that to our children. Uh, but always precious. And more importantly, it's, it's just so crazy to see how the kids are growing every single year. So thank you again, parents. And again, Merry Christmas Eve. Uh, always thankful to be able to share God's word and worship together. If you're new or visiting, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff. And yeah, I look forward to fellowshipping in a little more festive way after with the photos, the hot chocolate and the cookies, and especially if you're new, hopefully that's a, a little treat that you can take uh, from our church to you. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time to just hit the ground running because, you know, we want to get into the word for today. Uh, today, actually, we're not doing a specific Christmas message, but if you've been attending our church, you know that we've been going through a series through the non-festive book of Malachi, right? We were joking earlier that like Malachi is like the least Christmassy word. It's like, hey, you know, for Christmas, I don't preach to Malachi, right? It just sounds so like... Like doom and gloom in a way. But I will say like it wasn't intended for Malachi to end on Christmas Day. But it worked out very nicely because the more I studied Malachi, the more we understand the context of Malachi. It's actually very relevant for Advent season, right? It's, as we've been saying weekly, it's God's final word and interaction with his people before the first Christmas where 400 years later, Jesus shows up and is born and enters the picture. And obviously God knows he's sovereign, so he clearly has a final word he wanted to give to his people in preparation for that. And now we're going to reach the final message, the final conversation, and the final word of his final interaction. And I really do pray, especially if you've been journeying through us, uh, through this book with us, that the takeaway can be that God loves his people greatly. He loves his people enough that he wants to address them to have a conversation with them, to bring things up, to say, return to me. There's things that are affecting our relationship and I want to get into the nitty gritty. And hopefully you've seen week after week that, wow, following God, it's not just this token religious thing, but it really is an all of life ordeal. And today we'll see the final thing that God brings up as we close out this series and how he ends that conversation. So if you have your Bibles or your programs, turn with me to Malachi chapter three. We'll be reading verse 13 all day through chapter four, verse four uh, in the ESV. And as you turn or open, it, if you can rise with me as here at our church, we believe God is present and moving and speaking through his word. So let's look at our text for today in Malachi chapter 3 verse 13. It's the reading of God's word. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Chapter 4, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wing. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at horror for all Israel. It's the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, especially on this Christmas day, we are reminded of just the moment of history where you acted and you made clear and manifest your desire to want to bridge the gap, to be in relationship with your people, and you made it known specifically through not uh, anything other than your own son, Jesus Christ. So may we be mindful of that as we hear your word today. Open our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, well, so if you didn't know, um, I've been in ministry for well over 10 years, and a large chunk of my ministry was actually done doing like youth group and, and college ministry. And one thing I love doing with younger students, particularly college students, was, you know, you can't really just say like have a Bible study. You have to get them to think and you have to kind of engage them. And so I loved asking them icebreaker questions. Uh, and icebreaker questions that aren't just for fun, but that have like a spiritual twist to it. It's kind of like my pastoral trap card. It's like you think I'm trying to get to know you, but I'm trying to preach to you. It's kind of one of those things. And one of my questions, which I think all of us maybe just to get our brains rolling today, is like the class prototypical. What would you do if you knew you had one week? to live, right? So you're just, for somehow, some way, it's made known to you, you only have seven days left here on this earth, and it's always fun to hear what people have to share regarding that, right? Some people say, you got seven days, I will travel the world, do all the experiences that I can't do, and especially for collegians, it's especially exciting, because they have so much life left to live, and they're thinking, what can I cram in? Others would say, like, I'm going to confess my love to that boy or girl, or some would go as far as to say, I'm going to get married. And I'll just say, that's really hard to do in seven days, but go for it. Uh, others would say, I just spend quality time with loved ones. And, you know, understandably, this icebreaker just brings up values and how you would spend limited time that you have. We all get the purpose of that. So after going around sharing, I'd ask them, I have another icebreaker question now. It's kind of related. I would say, now, what would you do, though, if you knew Jesus would return in seven days? And then the, the tone totally shifts. They're like, oh, pastor, that's, that's different. That's totally different. And they kind of get nervous and the mood would clearly change and they would say, you know, what I would do if I knew Jesus would come. Suddenly they become spiritual. <laughs> like, you know, I would evangelize. And I'd be, oh, what happened to traveling? Oh, it's like, but it's different. It's Jesus coming back. I'm going to evangelize. Others would say like, like seven, seven days from now, I would repent. <laughs> I, would, I would fast. I would confess my sins. I'd try to, you know, reconcile relationships. And obviously it's not too hard to understand. The reality that I'm trying to get at with this icebreaker exercise is that those two questions for a Christian, it's, it's the same question. <laughs> it's literally the same question worded in a different way. And in the same way as I change the, the wording, you might think, oh, it seems a little bit different. The deeper truth that this icebreaker exercise reveals is that for many of us, it's not that we do not know in our heads that Jesus is going to return. Even our elementary students could probably tell that to you. That's literally Christianity 101. So it's not that we have a hard time knowing, it's that we have a hard time actually believing what we know enough for it to actually affect our hearts and our lives. Amen? You guys would agree with that, right? And this is not just a Christian thing. You see this in the secular world as well. We all know eating unhealthy is not good for you, but for some reason we have a hard time really believing that because we all eat junk food all the time. So there's this disconnect that happens. And I remember when I was in high school, there was a youth retreat in the, that I went to at church that had this theme that was centered around this idea. It was called... The 18-inch journey. So a fun Snapple fact for you, if you didn't know, apparently the general distance between one's head and one's heart is 18 inches. Now, don't quote me on that. I didn't measure that. But that's generally speaking widely accepted as the general distance. And this is not just a Christian idea. If you Google 18-inch journey, psychologists use that phrase and terminology. Other religions use that. Uh, it's just this idea that everybody agrees uh, taking what you know and having it take that 18-inch journey to your heart where you actually believe it, it's, it's tough. It's something that everybody struggles with. And I think the Bible presents a clear reason why that's the case. Because knowing something and actually believing in it 
believe it or not, God intended those two things to be married together. They were supposed to be one and the same. But because what Christians call sin, and the Bible would say this divorce happened in in our reality and our experience because something blocked that connection that was intended to be there. Now, how do we know this? Back in the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the picture, whatever Adam and Eve knew, they believed. There was a seamless marriage of the two. There was no doubting. There was no skepticism. There was no confusion. In other words, if God said something, they met it with ultimate trust, ultimate belief, ultimate confidence, and this is why Eden was paradise. It created a context of true freedom, true joy, true intimacy, because that 18-inch journey was seamless. Now, in one sense, if you think about it, is that not the picture of relational paradise and intimacy? Where there's 100% trust. Could you imagine you can take anyone's word to you literally? You don't have to ask their motives. You don't have to think, oh, they, do they have ulterior you know, intentions behind this? But joyfully, without question motive, you, you accept it for what it is. That's what was going on. And I would argue the first sin, and therefore by extension the root of all sins, is when Satan enters the picture and he creates this breach between what man knows and what man actually believes. Again, this is a very helpful clarification. From the very beginning, Satan has made it clear he could care less about what's in here. He's not after that. He didn't show up to Eve and say, hey, Eve, God's not real. Right? Because if it's about what she knows, wouldn't he try to tackle that? So she, she believes God's real. She's like, no, no, God's not real. In fact, look at his approach and see how his approach is so strategic and sneaky in this way. He doesn't say God's not real. He says, is what God said actually true? He's targeting her belief in the truth. Did God actually say that? Do you really think that's true? Is God actually good? He challenges your belief in what you know and what we see from the very beginning. Eve did not fall as a result of knowledge. Eve fell as a result of belief. That's why theologians will say the root of all sin is unbelief. It's a lack of trust in God and who he is. Now, I share this because this is literally what Israel was struggling with in our text today. In our previous weeks, we saw God called his people to return to him. And they told him to return in very explicit ways. Your offerings are, are your leftovers. I need you to bring your best. Your marriages matter to me. Check your marriages and your relationship with your covenant spouse. Your money and your possessions matters to me. They rightfully belong to me. But today, the final thing God addresses, I would argue, is potentially at the heart of all of that. And it's not the external action of the hands, but rather it is the posture and attitude of their hearts. Now, just know, I know today's Christmas service. As you can see, look around. There's literally like greenery on the pulpit, right? So it's very obvious it's Christmas service. You might be wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? And like I said, the encasing of this entire message is Malachi is speaking a, if I can put it this way, a Christmas message to prepare people's hearts for the coming of Christ. And just know Christmas, you can't think about the birth of Christ without also realizing that is part one of a two-part act. In other words, the, the Jesus being born also guarantees by virtue of his resurrection, Jesus will also return. 
And Malachi speaks of both of those things as relevant for our hearts to consider. And so that being said, we'll look at the text that basically there's two heart attitudes that are revealed through two different groups of people in Israel. And I love it when categories are clear like that because the easy application for us is which heart attitude and group do you see yourself resonating more with as we flesh it out? And so that's the three things we'll look at from the text. We'll look at the first group, which I would describe as the heart of the faithless. The second group, which is the heart of the faithful. And the third and last, which is what is the eternal reality and perspective that makes it worth it to be faithful? Okay, so the first group, the heart of the faithless. If I could summarize the primary struggle that the majority of the Israelites were struggling with in our text, it has to do with this simple question. What is the point of following God? What is the point? What's the point? What's the point of working out? What's the point of investing money? What's the point of following God? And unfortunately, a large majority of them had come to a pretty strong conclusion. There's no point. There's no benefit. To give an idea of what they're going through, basically, they knew in their head, like a lot of us do, that God is good, that God provides, that following God is supposed to lead to a fuller and more blessed life. And especially for a young Israelite kid, 24-7 they had been told this. Follow the Torah, follow the law, you are chosen people, right? Following God is the right and true way to live. But the problem is the more that they grew up and lived and experienced real life, if I can put it that way, their experience was contrary to what was actually going on in their teaching. You see, in Israel's history, again, they'd always been taught you are God's chosen people, right? You are a holy people. God has special favor over you. You are set apart. Now, here's the problem. The older they got, they didn't feel special. They didn't feel blessed. They didn't feel any different from their unbelieving neighbors and nations. In fact, if you look at just one verse before verse 12, they knew that God repeatedly told them throughout the law that you are supposed to be blessed. The other nations are going to look at you and see, wow, what worship, what God do they worship? Because this is a set apart nation. And yet, even though they knew all of that, God is not pleased with them, which at the very least shows you God could care less about what's in here. God's not pleased with them because as he hears the conversations that they're having, he realizes they don't believe any of it. They don't believe any of it. What they actually believed, which was leaking out in the way that they felt and talked about God, was there's actually no real benefit to follow God. Look at the text. God says, your words have been hard against me. And Israel responds, how? How have we spoken against you? And here's what he says. You say, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Now it's important to note, these are people who are not pagan or don't know what it means to follow God. These are very, quote unquote, on the surface, devout religious people. Because look at it. It's not that they're not following what God says. It says, we are keeping the charge of God. We are walking in repentance. So it's not someone who doesn't go to church or is involved. It is, like a lot of us, people who are doing all the Christian duties. People who are doing what the Bible says to do. And it's not an issue of hands again. It's the heart, which is, what do you actually believe about what you're doing? Is it tokenism? Is it all you know and you grew up with? Because that's what God's looking for. And let me turn it to us. Do you struggle with this? Do you struggle with feeling this way? Like, do you ever get discouraged in your faith and wonder, like, hey, what's actually the point? Like, I'm not going to stop doing it because that's kind of all I know, but like, what's actually the point? Like, I do everything I'm supposed to do as a Christian. I try my best to tithe. 
trying my best to be faithful in relationships. I go to church. I plug myself into community. But on Monday, that non-Christian co-worker friend I have, uh, to be honest, I envy their life. They look just as happy as me, if not happier. They, they seem more free. They don't have these religious restrictions. Uh, to be honest, if I were to be you know, in a vacuum, I would want to live that kind of life. That struggle is constantly plagued me throughout my life. As I regularly share, I grew up as your quintessential goody two-shoes, you know, raised in a moralistic pastor's kid environment. And from an early age, I was actually taught like Sam, the Bible is the truth of God and God is good. So you listen to what the Bible says and life will work out good for you. And so I took that. And you know what the thing about, the reason the Bible says have childlike faith, this breach has not really been severed that much for them yet. What they are taught, they'll believe it. That's what childlike faith is. But doesn't life hit you like a tsunami? Your lived experience starts to widen that gap and it gets more and more divided. That's exactly what happened to me. So I thought there's a correlation between living for God, it leads to some sort of blessing and fruit. And then second grade, morally traumatic day for me. My friend cheated on his test. <laughs> and I'm, I'm saying that like it is supposed to be funny. Yeah, it was. I'm thinking like, it seems so stupid, but for me, that was morally traumatic. And I'm thinking, okay, that's dishonest. He cheated on his test. And my theology and worldview tells me that's not the right thing to do. That's not pleasing to God. So something's probably going to happen to this friend, right? This guy was not Christian. He was always curious, like, why are you doing these Christian things? And I followed his journey educationally because, you know, we went to the same elementary school, junior high. Straight A student by virtue of cheating. Far more successful than a lot of people. Distance. What's going on here? Growing up a little bit older, I would see my unbelieving peers, what the world would call total sexual freedom, what the Bible would call sexual morality. They're just doing what they want. They think, oh, this is so weird. Why are you so like restricted? Why does Christianity paint this kind of picture that's so like seemingly oppressive? Why can't you just be free? Now, obviously the Bible does say it's not just obedience. There are deeper things that happens. But for me, as I'm growing up on the surface, they seem a lot happier than me, right? They, they kind of high five each other in this and they think like, like virginity and stuff, that's so old school, that's so outdated. And now as, as real as those struggles were to me as a younger kid, as I get older, it only gets harder and harder. Like, can't you resonate with this if you're a Christian who's been trying to walk with God? Because back then, the stakes, even as real as they were back then, aren't they a lot more trivial compared to what it is now? Like back then, what was at stake? What, good grades? You know, like social clout on a shallow level. But now, doesn't following God come with real costs? Like, you can't really fit in with a lot of the conversation and cultural norms of the day. It's very uncomfortable, right? We're in a stage now where culturally it's kind of uncomfortable to even say you're a Christian for obvious reasons. There's more at stake with your money, right? You're not called to tithe ten to hundred dollars. You're called to tithe thousands to ten thousand dollars, depending on how much you're making. So you're, there's real cost that's coming for you to follow God, and you start to realize a lot of times: is this not true? Generally speaking, some of the ungodliest people, their life is great. They get praise, glory, recognition, while your faithfulness a lot of times and the faithfulness of some of the people you know, it doesn't really seem more blessed. If anything, sometimes it seems the opposite. And the more we live real life, like the Israelites, the more the separation typically grows between what we know and what we've been taught and what we actually functionally believe. And that was the case for me. I knew what I was called to do as a Christian but I started to question, like, is this really actually, though, the best way, the most beneficial way, the most advantageous way to live? This is what Israel is going through. What's the point? What's the profit? What's, and they say, there is none. It is vain. 
Like, what's the point of being sorrowful over my sin when my unbelieving peers are in sin and they're glorying over it and nothing's going wrong with them? What's the point of trying to maintain integrity on taxes or being faithful and honest at my work when all these people are cutting corners, they're advancing themselves and they're doing just fine and it actually works for them? Like, what's the point? These are the real types of questions we deal with. And it got to the point where Israel got so fed up that now we see this great reversal where what God had told them is, you are a holy set-apart nation. Instead, here's what they're saying. We're not holy and blessed. In fact, the pagans and the arrogant ones, they're the blessed ones. The ones who take pride in their sin and independence, we envy them. They're living the good life. So they concluded, faith in Yahweh, it's futile. It's really not of much use. It's not very practical. It's not really worth it. And God hears them talking like this, both to each other and in their hearts. And he says, your words have been hard. That's tough for me to hear as a God who loves you. Can you relate to this? Now there's a second group though, the heart of the faithful. The tone shifts and he says, so that's group A. Now group B, it says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So the idea here, again, they're not saying these things directly to God because who dare say that to God himself. But the idea, let me give a modern day example. We have 17 community groups around roughly at our church and it's growing. So praise God for that. Imagine 13 community groups as they're talking about God and the Bible and Christianity. 13 of them are like group A, right? The majority of people are just like, oh yeah, sure. We'll just do the sermon question real quick. But let's talk about like practical reality. Like, come on, like that's not real life. Like, you know, you should just talk about 401k. We don't need prayer. We need to just strategize. And they're talking in this way. And God's kind of like, it's been hard for me to hear that from 13 community groups. But there's the four, the remnant, the four faithful ones. And I would like to say one of them is my group, Buena Park. So Buena Park's one of them. The other three, it's up for grabs, right? Prove yourselves. But God's listening in the way that his community is talking about him. And he says four in particular stand out to them as they're living the same circumstances, the same experience, but they are not jaded. They are not disillusioned. And this gap that is breached for most of humanity, they are struggling and clinging to keep it together. And he describes those people as people who fear the Lord. Now keep in mind, again, these people are not somehow intrinsically different from the first group of people. They're seeing the same things. They're potentially struggling, even feeling the similar things. They may have attended the same church. But as Malachi emphasizes here, they have a different conclusion. And the reason is because, as the text says, they feared the Lord, and particularly they esteemed his name. That's what it says. They esteemed his name. Now, you can't really understand the resilience of their faith without breaking down what it means to esteem the name of God. Okay? In the original language, when you esteem something, it means that it is preoccupying your mind in a way you are meditating on it. You are placing great value to it. You place high regard to it. The word in Isaiah 13, 17, it should be up there. It's used to describe this group of people called the Medes. And the reason they stood out is because the verse describes them as this way. They have no regard for, which means they don't care for, silver and do not delight in gold. In other words, when you esteem something, Your characteristic is you cannot be bought off. That's what it means to esteem it. You aren't swayed in your allegiance because you understand what is of greatest value and money cannot purchase it. So if I could distinguish what separated the first group from the second, it's this. You could place a dollar amount to what the faith of the first group was worth and you couldn't for the second. Uh, My guilty pleasure these days is after I put the kids down, I'll watch a Mr. Beast video, okay? 
Um, I like to say it's my pastoral way of being all things to all people, right? These youth are growing up, so I got to know their language. But the reality is I just love watching it. He does some of the craziest things. And if you don't know Mr. Beast, basically he's this, this almost billionaire YouTuber. He just does these viral videos where he makes people do crazy things and they actually do it because he'll do it, they'll do it for money. And it's like stupid things you would think are just hypotheticals. He'll say like, hey, live in this isolated room with a stranger you've never met for 100 days and I'll give you $500,000. And they actually do it. And they'll document them. Who does that? This other guy, he's like, I want you to live in this circle that I draw on the grass in the floor for 100 days. And he does it. It's crazy. Or other people, he'll say, like, I want you to live in a grocery store. And every day that you survive in the grocery store, I'll give you $10,000. The guy ends up getting over $400,000. I mean, he stayed over there, like, for four, four, 40 days or something like that. And it's really crazy. And what Mr. Beast videos, as viral as they what they show is, like, dollar amounts, it moves the heart of people. Would you do this for this much? Would you do that for that much? Is that not the prototypical hypothetical question we always ask each other? Like, would you do this for this, 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 and you keep going. So in other words, the idea is, imagine there's a spiritual auction happening. I'm the auctioneer, and the thing for sale is your faith. Insert your name. Your faith is for sale. And I say, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000. Money doesn't move you. A home. Future security. Some sort of thing you've been longing for. And I keep raising the stakes and raising the stakes. What will move your heart to finally raise your hand and say Sold. Sold. Do you have a dollar amount where your faith in God's goodness ends and your skepticism and doubt starts to creep in? Again, maybe it's not a dollar amount. Maybe it's future security. Maybe it's kind of a certain lifestyle or home. What would it cost to sell your belief in God's goodness? And again, let me make it clear. It is not your knowledge for sale that I'm talking about here. I'm talking about your belief in what you know because that is what Satan is after. And the second group could boldly say, not interested in silver or gold. We esteem the name of the Lord and our treasure is the Lord himself. Does this describe the state or pursuit of your nature of faith and trust in the Lord? Because whether you know it or not, anything less than this type of faith cannot sustain you and be meaningful to carry you through the ups and downs of life. Like imagine, if you were in a relationship with someone whose commitment and devotion to you could be bought off, Will you feel secure in that relationship? Absolutely not. You're like, well, when is, it, when is this person going to now go after that? And that's what God is saying. Not for his sake, but for your sake. If your relationship with him could be purchased or bought off, you will never experience the type of security that he intends for you to feel. Now, let me color this in a little bit. Um, I mentioned last week about a former missions co-leader that I knew. He's not too much older than me, similar age to some of you in this congregation. He passed away from a freak medical situation, okay? I told you guys about this. If you didn't, this basically happened. Where a few weeks ago, healthy man, healthy man with a wife and three kids, now left his wife and three kids behind. And, you know, I'm, I'm invested, obviously, like my former missions team, we haven't talked to each other in 15 years. We messaged each other. We're like, did you guys hear about this? We, I actually watched the live stream of the memorial very, very sad, obviously. Also encouraging in a lot of different ways. And I don't know the wife personally, but I've actually been following her Facebook updates because she updates it. She is a believer, okay? And your question is like, well, what, is, what does it mean that she's a believer? What does it actually mean? Is she like group one? Which is how dare you, God, take my husband away from me? It's not worth it to follow you. What's wrong with you? Or is she like group two, where even the loss of a loved one like this is not going to buy off her faith. It's going to only make it deeper. And I follow her Facebook and super, super thankful for her testimony. Uh, Slide up there. On her Facebook, she posted this update and this verse. Uh, Basically, a night before the memorial service. Is it up there? 
I quote from her Facebook, she wrote, grateful for her faith. Again, like a week after her husband has passed, grateful for a faith that's so deeply rooted inside me that even in the midst of unimaginable pain, the roots dig even deeper into the dirt. And she quoted this verse, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Now, that's an anthropomorphism. God doesn't literally collect tears. He doesn't need to do that. But he's writing that and coloring that for your sake. Because the real journey of faith is filled with tears, with struggles. It's hard. And this is what's really cool because Malachi captures that idea in our text. Look what it says. These faithful people, the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Anytime the Bible says the Lord paid attention, I love that. Because the image is like God is literally spinning the planets on his fingers. He's running the entire cosmos by the power of his will. He's running the world. And when one community group who fears him talks about how life is tough, but it's worth it to cling to the Lord, the universe pauses and it's God pays attention to your conversation on the couch. That's the idea here. Why would he do that? Because that is what is ultimately pleasing to him. These people don't just know about it. They believe me. They're fighting to trust me. And he says, those are the people, they are my, they are my treasured possession. Nothing is more pleasing to God than people who deeply fight to trust him. Let me prove it to you in Hebrews eleven six, one of my favorite verses. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Most of our theology thinks, hey, I know that God is real. I know that God exists, so it's all good, right? Absolutely not. And that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, a lot of y'all believe that God is real, but you don't believe that he's good. A lot of you think he's real, but you don't think it's actually really worth it to follow him. It's impossible to please him then. These Israelites fought to believe not only does God exist, they all believe God exists. Group A and B both believe that. But group B said, even if everybody seems to prosper around me, I will pursue and trust the one that I know will reward those who seek him. Is that you? I love again the language of book of remembrance. It's the idea that God has a heavenly angelic scribe opens the books. And when you do the littlest thing, again, I think it's fascinating what the Bible says God remembers, okay? Just know God does not remember how much money you made, how popular you were. He doesn't look at your Instagram account, how many followers you, he doesn't care how well-dressed you were. None of that's remembered. But you know what kinds of stuff God remembers? How did you treat the least of these? The poorest among you. That's how you treated me. Anyone who gives a cup of cold water to one of these children, will not be forgotten. Isn't that crazy? Like if you stoop down and there's a kid that's thirsty and out of the love of Christ, you give him a cup of cold water, God says, write that down. What seems so insignificant is recorded in the heavenly eternal books of history. And God says, I will write down a book of remembrance to the special prized possession. And Hebrews 6.10, I love this. God says, I have to do that because of my character as being a just God. He ties it to justice. He says, it is unjust of me to overlook people who have banked their life on me and faithfully try to serve me and my name in this life for it to be forgotten in the next. So he says, because I am just, I will not overlook the smallest thing you do for my name in serving the saints. 
Like those of you guys who come here early to set up and you're hauling a trailer around and you're doing all these things to serve the church and build up God's people and you think, well, this is going to be forgotten. No one's going to remember this. God's writing down every single thing saying, wow. But again, it's not just about are you doing it. It's like, do you believe in what you're doing? Now, how were these Israelites in this group able to remain faithful despite their circumstances? Let me get very practical here. They didn't do it on their own. What does it say? Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. If you're serious about God, you know how you're going to keep the fire going? You got to talk to other people who are serious about God. Absolutely essential. That is what our hope and vision is for our community groups. Again, not getting specific, generally speaking, I've heard community and community groups at a wide host of churches looks no different than your water cooler conversation at work. It just has like the branding of church. We could easily get there. But may our community, the way we talk about God, be described as people who strive to fear the Lord and esteem his name. We encourage each other. We speak to each other. We correct each other. That is the hope and vision of what our community groups ought to be because that's the type of community needed to maintain the resilience of faith communally in a world that is so increasingly wicked and dark. So the question then is, well, what is the content of the conversation? Right? Like you, these people feared the Lord and they're talking together. Well, what are they talking about? What was it that they were pointing each other to that made them stay resilient through this? Third and last, the eternal perspective. So these days, again, I'm always trying to see what is the lingo of the land so I can have a first conversation to have with any, whether they're a newcomer or a member. And I know for a lot of us, the easiest question to ask, uh, not for everybody, but for a lot of us is like, uh, what Korean shows have you been watching these days? And if I get even specific, I say, like, uh, who do you like on Singles Inferno? And they'll kind of, like, bow down in shame, and they'll be like, uh, this person, right? And I tell them, like, you know, I, I watch it a little bit for pastoral reasons, right? Like, I'm supposed to be all things to all people. So I just need to know what you're going through, you know? It's not for me. It's for you. And so, you know, but the thing about Korean shows is, like, I, I don't know if you know, they're, like, 10 years behind on this. Myers-Briggs is exploding in Korea right now. It's equivalent to your name. My name is Sammy NTJ. That's literally what it is. Like, Everything about it is like, what is your name and what is your MBTI? Right, MBTI, MBTI. And apparently in Korea, it's like a big thing to be an F. Like if you're a T, they like, they like look down on you. And I'm really sad about it because I'm a T. I'm like what the heck, man? Like no love for the T's. And I know there's some T's in here. But anyways, I'm an ENTJ. And the reason I bring that up, J's, I think a lot of you are J's. Don't we love to know what to expect, J's? Like, hey, let me know what to expect. Whether we're traveling, whether it's a Sunday, I want to plan and know what to expect. And I would argue, it's not just a J thing. Let me show some love to you. I think it's a human thing. Humans love to know what to expect because what does it do for you? It gives you perspective. It makes you know how to prepare. If you're going to pack for a trip, if you don't know what to expect, how do you know? Do I pack shorts? Do I pack a sweater? So that's why, is that not why we, we look at our calendars ahead of time, why we check the weather ahead of time, why we create budgets? So if you look at the forecast and it says it's going to rain tomorrow, you have perspective. I know I need to pack an umbrella and wear a rain jacket. And anyone who looks ahead and clearly knows what to expect and then wears something contrary to that, aka shorts and, and a shirt, you would think, what happened there? It, it, that's very unwise. Now, getting a little deeper, uh, obviously California, we don't have too many natural disasters, but fires are one of them. Anytime there's a wild California fires, typically there's a lot of loss of homes and a lot of loss of possessions. And whenever you hear the witnesses or the testimonies of people who've lost their home, I mean, imagine any of us is liable to that, right? A lot of times fires come really close to our home. They always say, if I knew that my home was going to be burned up, it would have given me a lot more perspective. 
I would have known not to travel so heavy. I would have known what my game plan. I would have known that life's not about possessions. In other words, if they knew my house is going to be burned up, it would have given me a preparedness and a perspective on how I should live. Now, one thing that God is very explicit about, and the reason I shared it in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, God paints a very clear picture of what to expect. What to expect, not just at the end of our lives, but the end of human history as we know it. That's what chapter four is. Look what he says. For behold, here's what to expect. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming that will shut them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Group A. But for you who fear my name, group B, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, I don't have time to talk about both of them. I'll give a quick word to the first. Just know there is a day coming that is familiar, famous, been called Judgment Day, the last day, the Lord's Day, whatever you might call it. But there is a day coming where it will make all wrongs right. The wicked will receive just punishment. Those who turned away and were lived unrighteously will receive punishment for that. And a lot of people in Orange County, we, don't, we hear that and we don't really care too much about that. We think it's irrelevant. Can I tell you, I've read stories where people in war-torn countries would not believe in God if this promise was not there. You know why? Because their life has been, their family was murdered in cold blood by someone who is still on the loose, has never been met with justice. This wicked person is going around living a sinful life. And to tell them that, God is going to bring vengeance and make all wrongs right, even when human governments fail to do it and our broken justice system cannot do it, that no wicked act is not seen by God and he will make all wrongs right. They cling to that promise. That's what helps them not get filled with bitterness and rage. Because God says, I am just. Now more could be said about that, but that is part of it. But the part I want to focus on that spoke to me is this idea and picture that the faithful will go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, last I checked, nobody owns a cow or a calf, okay? So I love, when I see stuff like that, I love doing my research. So I did my research on this, why this imagery, why this language. I don't know if you know, uh, calves, uh, if you talk to farmers, they say one of the most enjoyable things to look at when you raise livestock and if you're a farmer is when you first release a young calf into the open pasture for the first time. Here's why. Because calves, especially if they're born in the winter, all they know, their reality is the confinement of the stall. They think this is life. This is reality. This is my world. So I can't stretch my legs as fully as I want to. I can't really enjoy green pastures. I don't feel the warmth of the sun, but that's all they know. But when spring arrives and the sun rises, the farmers say they wait for the moment when they open the gate to that, what was the only world that these calves knew, it said they literally go nuts. I YouTube this and I cried. I know, Angela was probably like, my wife's probably like, why are you watching cows jumping around and crying? There's a reason why. That's what pastors do to get in the text. YouTube it. I, calf experience. Cows typically you think are these like slow movers. Even the big ones that are like bigger, they're literally like rolling in the grass, running into the fence, jumping up and down. And what farmers would say, and I quote, is when a calf is first released, they are finally living this new life that they were supposed to have lived, but they never knew about. That's the image here, this jubilant excitement. And they all say it is a sight to behold. So for those who fought to trust in God's promises and his words, no matter how hard life got, because the understanding implication is this life is a confined stall, whether you know it or not. And he says there's one of two groups and there's one of two destinations. 
And the destination for those who trusted in me, no matter how hard life got, the return of Jesus will be like three descriptions. The feeling of the sunrise after a lifetime of darkness, the feeling of healing after a lifetime of sickness, and the feeling of freedom after a lifetime of confinement. Now, I want to close by sharing a, a personal illustration of why that, that expectation is so precious for me. And not me personally, but someone very personal to me. If someone were to ask me, like, who is the godliest, most Jesus-loving person that you have personally walked with and witnessed in your life, I would tell them, no-brainer, it's my uncle, my dad's older brother. Uh, and especially in this holiday season, I'm thinking about him a lot because as far as I know, my earliest memories, every holiday season, Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, we would always meet with him and, you know, my, my aunt, and we would share life together in that way and up until just a couple years ago. Uh, and uh, they recently moved. He retired. He moved with his wife to Korea to be closer to family. And my dad's one of those family members. He's in Korea right now. Uh, some of the reasons why, if you ask me, why is he the picture of godliness? Number one, all the memories I have of him, he is famous for his laughter of joy. Always joyful, always laughing. That's not because his life's not hard, but there's almost this intrinsic joy that he literally exudes in his aura and his presence that we always look forward to. It would literally light up the room. Uh, there was a point in time where it was financially tough for him and my aunt, so they lived with us for a little bit, and I got to observe his life. Um, he memorized all of Romans and Matthew. <laughs> Not like Romans chapter 8, right? Or 8.28. All of Romans in Korean. Now, that's not to say memorizing scripture makes you godly, but let me tell you this. You ain't going to memorize scripture if you're not godly. <laughs> All of that. I saw that. As I got a little older, I realized, like, hey, I don't have cousins on his side. So I asked my dad as I got a little older, like, hey, how come uncle, you know, he doesn't have kids? And my dad, I think when he realized, I could kind of understand, he said, like, nobody loves kids more than your uncle and your aunt. Nobody wanted to have kids more than your uncle and your aunt. But it did not work out that way. The Lord did not choose to bless them in that way. And it didn't hinder their faith. And so I actually made it a point. I wanted to ask my uncle. You know, he's, a, he's a Christian and he, he was a pastor too. So I said, hey, when, when God didn't answer that, like, was it hard for you? And he said, yes and no. He said, it was hard in the sense that did we not get something we desired? Of course that was hard. But it wasn't hard because he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. He's like, most Christians, their struggle is because they're, they're not sure if they've decided yet. But he's like, once you make the decision, it's pretty clear. As hard as it gets, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And he's like, God never promised me children. So there must be some good sovereign purpose. Now, it's not easy, but what he did promise me is he'll take me through it, and he promised me his presence. Uh, he felt called to minister at the age of 40. So he dropped everything. He attended seminary as a 40-year. He came out of the Korean newspaper as the oldest valedictorian of the seminary. 40-year-old <laughs> guy. Dropped everything to become a pastor. So he felt called to minister. He pastored a small congregation faithfully for like 20 years. You guys know when you go to like retreat or Big Bear and you stop by that town to like go to the restroom or stop by the McDonald's and you're like, who would live here? That's where he pastored. <laughs> Ukaipa, Redlands, the place between retreat and home. That was his home for 20 years. Lived there faithfully, pastored a small congregation for, never got bigger than like 50. And so I'm thinking, so two years ago, um, I don't know if the picture showed, first picture. So one of my life goals was actually to, Lord willing, one day have him hold my own kid for obvious reasons. 
And this was like a, such a precious core memory for me for obvious reasons, right? Um, he never got to have, be a grandpa in his own personal sense, obviously. So that was a beautiful moment for me. And this was towards a, like a little past COVID where he was essentially wrapping up to retire. And basically, what I would say on a worldly sense, enjoy retirement. Is that not what retirement is, right? You, you were faithful. You lived a long and good life, so you get to enjoy. So I was helping because he doesn't have kids of his own, like helping him, you know, square away his home and all his finances. And then uh, next picture. So this is the last time I saw him in June 2022. That's him and his wife. Wife, same, same traits as him. And I was like, oh, I want to take this picture to remember because, you know, I might not see you again, but you're going to go to Korea. Hope it's a good retirement. You're going to see my dad or whatnot. And his health wasn't the best, but it was okay. Like, I thought he has a good, I don't know, Lord willing, five, ten years to, like, now, you know, rest and enjoy. He deserves that. And I remember soon after he went, I would talk to my dad. And my dad would tell me stuff. And he was basically saying, like, oh, you know, your, your uncle's not doing too well. And he basically said, like, oh, your, your uncle, he basically has, like, rapidly developed advanced Parkinson's. I don't know if you know, Parkinson's is a scary disease. And for him in particular, it was just really overnight type aggressive where if you don't know advanced Parkinson's by definition, you can't take care of yourself. You need a 24-7 caretaker. You can't do the basic, ordinary human things. And my dad was telling me, like, man, whenever I call him, though, he'll always, I'll say, like, how are you doing? And he'll always say, like, my dad's name is Myung-hwan. He'll always say, like, Myung-hwan. In Korean, obviously, like, every day is just a gift from God. Every day I get to wake up, it's a gift from the Lord. And, and then he'll be honest, though. But he's like, dude, you know what I miss so much that I never thought I would envy? I miss being able to walk. I can't walk by myself. I miss being able to take showers unassisted. I miss being able to go to the bathroom. How do you make sense of that? Like, really, I'm still wrestling with that. In a worldly sense, this guy gave and wasted his life. He wasted, he's past his prime. It's like a sad, unfortunate situation. It's just full of pity. Now God, God may heal him or he may not. So I thought, what a ride off into the sunset story of like he retired of faithful service to the Lord and then the Lord gave him 10 blessed years. It's not looking that way. How do you make sense of that? Now, I don't know why God sovereignly orchestrated the events of his life in this way. I don't know why God is sovereignly orchestrating the lives of your situations in certain ways. Now, I know it's purposeful. I think the Bible is clear about that. I don't know what that purpose is. But here's the beauty of the text today. And here's the beauty of even Christmas, of what it signifies for all believers for all eternity. I do know what my uncle should expect when he meets the Lord. He should expect when he enters into paradise. There's a chapter written about him in the book of Remembrance pastoring a small church in Yukaipa that the world thought is a waste of life, his advanced disease will be met with an even more advanced healing as the son of righteousness rises with healing for his legs, his body. He will experience a freedom and joy that can only be described as our text today, which is like a calf who has been released from confinement of the stall for the very first time. Do you have a hope and security that will take you beyond age 30, age 40, beyond your prime, beyond your health, beyond things going relatively well through the darkest moments of life? There's a great reformer named Luther. He said, in light of this text, he lives his life expecting and planning for two things. On his Google calendar, he would say, there's two things I've written down. There's today and then there's that day. And those are the bookends of how I live my life. 
If I am given today, I will live it in light of that day. We're not going to do it perfectly. I'm not trying to over-spiritualize here, but that is the bookending of the Christian perspective of living expectantly with spiritual eyes to see God's perspective on all of history and humanity. And Jesus is obviously a clear moment where he breaks through, like I am moving this thing forward through the death and resurrection of my son. And so the practical application as we close, how does the Old Testament end? Therefore, God brings it full circle and he says, therefore, remember the law of my servant Moses. In other words, trust that I am who I say I am and fight to believe that I will do what I say I will do. And if you need proof of that, look to Jesus. And as we close the year, end of the year, beginning of the year, it's a time of recollection and resolution, is it not? What better time than to see if Jesus really came, died, and was resurrected, which he did, Can you trust him? Can you trust his word? Can you live expectantly? And our church does our best to provide ways to do that. Bible reading plans. We're planning to do a year where we're emphasizing prayer. All of those things are ways to help us to do that and live that kind of way. Let's close in prayer.